My name is Beverly, and I am a very grateful member of Al-Anon. And I didn't because now I wanted to start out. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? I, wow. I am, I am overwhelmed with um, a feeling of gratitude for being invited to speak in my home state, Al-Anon Convention. And I want to thank Kay for giving me this privilege. She's let me dwell on it for two and a half years. <laughs> and for two and a half years, not once when I thought about it, did I ever think or take it for granted. Um, because it is a privilege to be able to speak in your home state and talk to people who have watched you grow. And I'll tell you what, um, you know, it's like you really got to be honest here. <laughs> I can't make anything different than what it is. Um, so I'm going to just thank you for helping me celebrate my birthday. Um, I intended to stay 28 days, so I don't know how this happened. Um, maybe it is just so that I can torment my husband and my son. I don't know. <laughs> um, this just blew me away. <laughs> Um, let's see. All right. My home group is the Friendship Al-Anon Family Group, which meets in Louisville, Texas. And I have a sponsor, and uh, she would normally be here tonight, but she's off somewhere, enjoying um, participating at a, another convention. And I um, talked to her this afternoon, and um, so I'm connected. Uh, my husband is back there. And he's a lucky guy because he's had me for almost 52 years. And he asked me not to make him stand up, and I'll honor that. But he is in that back corner wearing a plaid shirt, in case you all are wondering <laughs> who Mr. B is. Um, I have three golden retriever dogs, and so you might just say our house has gone to the dogs. Um, they have let us live there um, in peace and harmony, and, and it's a fun it's a fun house. It's full of dog here. You come to my house, don't wear black. Um, I um, I had the privilege of picking my son up at the airport last night at 4:40 in the evening, and um, on March 30th he'll celebrate 32 years of sobriety. And two days ago, I honored my son that I lost to the disease of alcoholism. He um, passed away 20 years ago on February 6th. So a lot happens in the month of, of February. It's a time of celebration, and it's a time of uh, just heart-wrenching memories. And today, when I walked in the door, so many of you remembered things about me that you told me about that I didn't remember. Some of them I did remember. And that's the wonderful part about being rooted and anchored in this program is that our friendships cement us together for years, even though we don't see each other. I walked in, and I was standing in the lobby, and I had on a bright pink jacket. And some gal walked up to me, and she says, I don't know who you are, but you really look great in that color. And I said, thank you. And I says, my name is Beverly, and she's said, oh my God, I met you 18 years ago and you made me a baby blanket. And, you know, it's like, I don't remember. You know, some things I don't remember. But those are the things, you know, that we do along the way that bind us together. Um, when Kay said, if you have any complaints about this conference, I believe that the people who are complaining ought to sign up for the blank spaces on the committee. <laughs> That'll teach you. A lot of work goes into this. It doesn't just happen. Uh, lots of meetings and you know, lots of working, lots of planning. Um, a lot of opportunities for spiritual growth. Because um, in, a, in a business meeting, we aren't always all that spiritual. And there's a whole bunch of my rowdy friends here from Dallas. And um, they would be the Bruton Terrace Group, the Freedom Group. The Omega Group and the Duncanville Group. 
And those are a bunch of active women. No matter where I am and no matter where I go, these ladies are there. And, uh, they, you know, they're always laughing, always having a good time, and they've always got a great story and a big hug. And uh, so, I, you know, I just love what has happened to me in the years that I've been here. <sighs> now that I've caught my breath a little bit, um, I'm going to start out just by reading, oh, who did this? That is so beautiful. I do needlework, and I absolutely know how much time and love went into making this little bookmark, and I just want you to know that I acknowledge you, and thank you very much. Thank you for the lovely room. Thank you for the lovely gift basket um, for dinner, Danielle. Um, just, I, I'm just full. But to kind of calm down and get myself together here, I'm going to read a page out of my little old book um, because it pretty much says talks about what it was like, what happened, and what it's like today. And it starts out, it's on page four of my little old book, and it says, after many years of covering up George's illness and making excuses for George's behavior, I was relieved to be in the company of people who accepted me as I was, and I realized that I could not control George's actions. They saw qualities in me that I had ignored for years and helped me give myself credit for the positive attributes. They welcomed me into the group. I was inspired by the strength that some people showed in times of crisis, and I was awed by the caring and love that people shared with me. After so many years of feeling helpless and worthless, I was in a group that not only accepted me as I was, but helped me become the person I had always wanted to be. They taught me that I could not love and help others until I felt loved and secure myself. Today, with the help of my higher power and the fellowship of Al-Anon, I am often able to share that love and support with others who need it, which really kind of falls in love with our little slogan, Live, Love, and Laugh. And I know for a fact that all of us sitting in this room did not come here feeling loving, feeling like we wanted to live, or certainly not that we had anything else to laugh about. One time, not so many years ago, my husband and I um, were at a group in Addison, and a, and a celebrity person talked, and a big celebrity person. And he told about all of the times when he was popular and making billions of dollars, and then how the disease of alcoholism progressed in his life and what ended up happening and how he lost it all. And it was an amazing story, and he had a great talent for being able to tell it. And we laughed and we cried and we laughed and we cried, as we do in these meetings. And in that particular night, my, my sister-in-law was with us, and my brother and our son were out celebrating my brother's birthday, and they were getting loaded and stoned and drinking and everything. But she came with us to hear this man talk, and when we got out in the car, I said to her, I said, so what did you think? Wasn't he amazing? And she says, I didn't see anything funny about that. And I thought to myself, well, she's a wet blanket. <laughs> but what I realized the next morning when my son and my brother got back, they had a hangover, they were drunk, they were slobbery, they were, you know, just mean. My brother was probably down in a little tequila, and that did not go well with his personality and I looked at that and it suddenly occurred to me how different my view of that meeting had been because I was in recovery and my husband was sober and we had one sober kid and you know my perception about it all had changed but my sister-in-law went to bed with that man that night and there was nothing funny about the disease of alcoholism so we do need to live love and laugh here because it's the way that we get to heal but I'll tell you about my little dreary story. Um, I was raised in, in what I believe was an alcoholic home. Now, I know that I'm not supposed to call anybody an alcoholic, so I'm going to tell you another little story that I know for a fact that I was raised in an alcoholic home. In 1988, I got the great privilege of caring for my father. Um, he was dying of multiple myeloma. And... Um, his neighbor called and said, Beverly, do you know that your father can't eat? He had been going through some radiation treatments, and it burned his esophagus. And she says, he's laying here dying on the sofa. And he lived in Carpinteria, California. And I says, no, I had no idea about my dad. But, you know, he came from that generation, don't tell the kids. You know, no matter what, you don't tell the kids. 
And so I said, you're, I had no idea. I call him every day, and he says, I'm fine. You know, don't worry about me, pigeons. So anyhow, within 24 hours, because I was in the program, we were able to get him from Carpinteria to Dallas and get him situated in our house. And through a series of more miracles and things, I was able to find a hematology oncologist within a few minutes. It just so happened somebody I worked with knew somebody who knew somebody. Just so happened when I made the phone call, there was an open appointment that had just been canceled, and we got that appointment. And it was all really, you know, in a divine order. But one day we were coming home from one of the chemo treatments, and I sat him down in the sofa, covered him up with a blanket, and I handed him a magazine that had a drink on it, like in the Caribbean. I've never been there, but there I've seen pictures of it. And um, it had all the fruit and the sweat down the glass. And I says, oh, my God, Daddy, doesn't that look good? And he said, you know, Pigeon, ever since I've been on this morphine, I have not wanted to drink. <laughs> so I can pretty much tell you that he was alcoholic. Um, he went to work every day. He came home at exactly 5 o'clock. Um, children were supposed to be seen and not heard. Um, you know, they, there was all of the things in that family that happened in alcoholism. There was sometimes they were loving and kind, and sometimes, you know, you would duck and run, and that's just the way that it was in the family. Um, I enjoyed my father a lot. I, just, I really loved my dad. He was high energy like me, and he um, loved a good time, and you know, I was like really attracted to him. What I know today is that I wasn't only attracted to my father. I'm just attracted to alcoholics, <laughs> especially the cocky, arrogant ones. I mean, those are my kind of guys. And um, Now, I'm not taking Mr. B's inventory, but he was one of them. <laughs> He had his cute little ducktail and crew cut and smoked those cigarettes in that foxy way, and I was hooked within a couple of minutes. But anyhow, um, going back to my dad, he was a fun-loving guy. If they weren't building a boat in the neighbor's garage, there'd be the galvanized tub and a brick of ice and an ice pick, and they'd chip it and put the bottles of beer in there. And there was always a lot of laughter in the garage, and I wanted to be in the garage and not in the kitchen where my mom was. And I learned, I think, at an early age how to get out of Dodge. You know, we find places we can go to hide out when, it, when, when it's not pleasant at the house. And I spent a lot, as much time as I possibly could spend out of that house. And um, I, I tried to follow the rules. You know, there were a lot of rules in, in the house. You know, you be home on time and, you know, you don't wear your Sunday clothes only for Sunday. And I think I was... 70 years old before I finally said, screw the Sunday clothes. You know, it's like by the time I wore them, they were out of style and, and you know, they give them away. And, and I began to, I mean, really, some of those things are so ingrained in us that it takes years and years and years in recovery to overcome a lot of those things that we were taught when we were kids or in, in early marriage or wherever we learned them. It takes a long time to unlearn those things in Al-Anon. And um, so I, I, um, there was the fun and there was the fighting. And um, there were a couple of significant things that happened. The first thing was my sister was born. And I didn't like that idea. I just thought, you know... <laughs> They put her in a cute little bassinet in the middle of the living room floor, and immediately I could see that she was going to get more attention than I was going to get. And I, I didn't know it was jealousy and competition at the time, but I saw it that way, and I just thought, why don't you, why don't you just make it real easy on yourself and just take her back wherever you got her? And I, I just thought that her being born was her fault and that she needed to pay for that. And so I... For the next, um, I don't know how many years until I made, uh, did an inventory in Al-Anon and made her pay for being born. Um, you know, I, I, I was not a nice person, but I'm here to tell you that because of an inventory and a God and, um, and, and what I learned in Al-Anon that my sister is my best friend today. Um, but that wasn't the way that it was. Three years after she was born, my, um, my brother came along, and um, I, didn't have, I didn't take exception to that. I didn't feel any threat with that. Like I said, my father worked every day. We always had our needs met, but they were also kids that came out of the Depression, and um, it, you know, they were afraid of, of financial insecurity, and they had a right to be afraid. 
they had been through, you know, the most degrading situations that you go through apparently when there is no money. And besides that, my mother's father was also an alcoholic and he died at a relatively young age of this illness. So, um, so money became this God and my mom taught me things like, you know, if I could just move out of Chicago and into the suburbs, everything will be better. And if I could just, if my father would say, if I just had a new pair of shoes, everything would be better. And it was always some something, a new car or something, you know, a new sofa, something would make it better. But what I know today, because I, I've been here as many years and I'm passionate about this program, is that no matter what you do, no matter what you buy, no matter what you drive, no matter what you live, this is a spiritual illness. And it, and, it, and it needs a spiritual solution. And there is nothing material that is going to fix what's wrong with us. And so we did all those things. We chased the new house, and they got the new car, and, they, you know, and, and then we moved on into Utah in my senior year of high school, and that was very devastating for me. And finally I turned 18, and you know, when we got to Utah it was supposed to be better, but it wasn't better because alcoholism is a progressive disease. And when we got to Utah, my father met the train and he was drunk and it started all over again with all the fighting and the yelling and the screaming and, you know, all those games that, they, that we learn how to play in the active disease of alcoholism. It was all happening in the house that I was being raised in and it was progressing and it was worse. So finally I turned 18. It was a lonely year for me. I had no friends. I, we, I changed high school twice in my senior year. And finally I got to go to work where my dad worked and I wasn't there. I don't think I was there very long when that handsome man at the back corner in the brown plaid shirt came in. And he had a crew cut and a ducktail and he smoked cigarettes and I was sold. You know, I was a product of American Bandstand and it had been a long time since I had seen that show. And I was in Utah where they, there was a lot of Mormons and they dressed up, you know, they were very appropriate. I was in a poodle skirt and a ducktail and I had my sweater buttoned up backwards and big old body socks and saddle shoes and I stood out like a sore thumb. There was just nobody that looked like me in Utah. So it was a bad year. This is a bad year. So I went to work um, at this place where my dad worked and he walked in one day and you know I just thought, oh my God, that's mine. And, um, but the, there was a little problem with that. He was married at the time. <laughs> now, there was a little trouble. And they said he's been married six months. All of us have gone to his wedding. It was a lot of fun. But I think he's sleeping in his office. Um, and he's got his clothes on a cot, or uh, his clothes on a pipe, and he's sleeping on a cot. And, you know, my first thought about that was not, oh, poor George. <laughs> it was like, wow, that's. If he was mine, I could make him happy. Now, I have no idea how to make myself happy, but my first thought is, if he was mine, I could make him happy. So, um, he had, there was a lot of rumors, you know, back with her, and then back in the office on the cot, and then back with her, and back in the office. And I kept my eye on him, and kept asking people about him, and, you know, what was new in his life. And one day he came up to me, and he says, I am officially separated from my wife and I would like to take you out on a date. And I thought that I had died and gone to heaven. So the first night, he comes to pick me up. It's Friday night. And um, bring him in the house, introduce him to my mom and dad. And my dad grabs him and takes him in the kitchen. And they're like old friends in the kitchen. The glasses are clanking and they're laughing and carrying on in there and brought a little cocktail out to my mom and I. And by the time we actually walked out of the house on that first date, he was half in the bag. It was normal to me. It was all that I knew. If he had been, I'll, I'll tell you, one time I went out with a guy. Um, he had a nice car. It was clean. <clears throat> he didn't smoke. He showed up at the time that he said he was going to show up. And he took me to his house, and we sat in his backyard under a blooming cherry tree. And he brought out this little wooden table and set a chessboard out there. And the 78 RPM record was playing classical music, and he was going to teach me how to play chess. And I kept thinking all night, I cannot wait to get out of here. I need drama in my life. You know, I need 
somebody who's a half hour late or not at all so I can blame myself that there's something wrong with me. And he gave me a lot of opportunities <laughs> to look at myself and create a new and better me. And so I'd get skinny and buy new pedal pushers and dye my hair and, you know, do everything. But you know what? That doesn't cure alcoholism. Alcoholism is a progressive disease, and I was dealing with somebody who had started drinking when he was a young age. So when he would not show up for a date, I would think, oh, what can I do? You know, what have I done? My mother must have said something. You know, I had to create a scenario that would make it okay that he wasn't there. And then he would call me the next morning, and, um, and he would say to me something like what's in the big book. You know, I'm so sorry. And it would be that incomprehensible demoralization. He'd say, I don't know what happened, and I'll never do it again. And I didn't know that I was going to get to listen to that for another 21 years. <laughs> Not only from him, but the two that I eventually gave birth to. You know, I don't know what happened, and it'll never happen again. And the, and the truth of the matter is, he didn't know what happened. And he, when he said it would never happen again, he really meant it. But he had, an alcohol, he had alcoholism, and when he took a drink... The drink took a drink, and the drink took the man. And I learned that in open meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous, which I was sentenced to go to because they said that I had to learn, you know, what made... You are so angry at him. You know, you have to learn what it is that makes an alcoholic an alcoholic. And the only way that you're going to learn how to do that is to go to open meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous and listen to them talk. And I did that, but we'll go back there. Um, but at the time that he was telling me all that, I didn't know that he had an illness. And I didn't know that he really meant to pick me up. And then he would come on time one time. He'd surprise me and actually show up at the given time. And then the next time he wouldn't. And then he'd call and he's lost his car. And, you know, all of that stuff. Well, I'm in high drama. I love when I'm called into action. I loved on Sunday mornings when he'd say, I went out with Kim last night, and I don't know where my car is. Well, you've called the right girl. Uh, I have you. I have you. So we would find the car, and, you know, it, was, um, it went on like that. We dated, or whatever we did, for a year and a week, and got married uh, by a justice of the peace in my living room and went off on a little two-day honeymoon, and I found out a couple of weeks later that I was pregnant, and the odd part about that is that I did have birth control pills. I didn't know I was supposed to take them. <laughs> so nine months and two days after uh, we were married, um, I have a baby that I don't know how to take care of. I do not have a clue how to take care of a child. We went to work. We go on this little two-day honeymoon, come back from Salt Lake to Ogden. Monday morning, we each go to work. And Monday night, I come home like the little wife, straighten up the little basement apartment, fix a tuna casserole, and he doesn't come home. And I'm like, well, that's odd. My dad always was home at 5 o'clock. And so I called him at the office, and I said, when are you coming home? And he says, oh, I'll be there in a few minutes, dear. You know, it's that newlywed voice. But the fourth time I called him that night, his, his tone changed because he had had a few drinks. And he says, I'll be there when I get there, and don't call me again. And it was like right from the very beginning, I had that feeling inside of me like, you know, oh, no, not again. But I didn't know, oh, no, not what again. I didn't know what it was. Because on one hand, he was exciting, and on the other hand, he was confusing, and I began right from the very beginning to get angry at him for not showing up when he was supposed to, for not doing what he was supposed to be doing. I mean, I took those wedding vows pretty serious, you know, that I was committed to this thing, and I was going to fix the dinner, and I was going to be home at 5 o'clock and everything. You know, what's wrong with him? So that anger started to build. But the anger was with me even before I married him, and even before he started to disappoint me, and even before he was lying to me, although I didn't know that he wasn't lying, because the truth served him better. It was, you know, he, he was telling me the truth, but I didn't know that. And so life went on, and my sister helped me learn how to take care of a little kid, 
and two years later I have another little baby and he's not coming home from work at all. I mean, he's leaving early in the morning and not coming home until late. And I kept that dinner warm. And, you know, he'd come in the door. And I've heard it said here that my mouth was attached to the doorknob. And I just wanted to fight. Because I'd been, I'd been building up that head of steam all night. And when he gets in here, I'm going to let him have it. Well, it doesn't do any good, you know, to talk to somebody who's been drinking all night. But by God, I was going to get my point across. And then he would sort of eat, and then he would sleep on the couch. And I didn't know that he passed out. So there was a lot of things that I didn't know about alcoholism that I got angry at and hurt over and, and tried to fix and, and, you know, just thought maybe one more, it paint the kitchen yellow or whatever, you know, whatever you have to do. But what I, I didn't know is that none of those things are going to cure alcoholism. So time went on, and he went up the corporate ladder, and he was... You know, doing fine. We left um, Utah. We went to Pennsylvania. And for a period of time in Pennsylvania, alcoholism kind of went on the back burner. We met a bunch of people who were farmers, and they had snowmobiles and little camping trailers and motorcycles, and we got kind of caught up in the fun. And they were fun people. Um, and we just got caught up in that. And, and for a couple of years, he came home, and, you know, they'd tinker with the snowmobiles in the garage on Saturday morning. And we went out on date nights on the snowmobiles and had paths through the woods. And, you know, nobody really drank a lot. And his drinking kind of, it, it was kind of just not a big deal for a couple of years. And then we moved to New Jersey, and other things changed. And I could see, looking back at it, the disease started to progress again, and I got even. I got angry again. I got. I'm like, why can you do this in Pennsylvania and not in New Jersey? And so I had always promised myself that I wouldn't, you know, take my anger out on my kids. But I don't want to take it public. So my kids got the brunt of a lot of it, and then he got the rest of it when he walked in the door. And we ended up in Texas. Um, Actually, something historic is happening in the East Coast. In 1978, they had a snowstorm similar to what they're going to have now, and that was the year we left. And the last snowstorm, you know, it was like we watched it snow four feet, and it was the most incredible thing. And I had wished for snow, but I didn't do this to those people. I didn't. <laughs> this, that is not my fault. But anyhow, it, you know, we ended up uh, here um, in 1978. But I want to tell you something about New Jersey because it was significant. We lived in a little town called Sparta, and it was a private community on a lake. And we lived within a block of the lake, so it was considered on the reservation. And we paid a little dues, and we had access to, I don't know, 13 or 14 beaches that were around this little lake. Sailboats, no big motorboats, nothing like that. It was a very quiet, sweet lake with swans. Um, and my boys would spend a lot of time down at the beach. And in the summertime, they would say, Mom, why don't you make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and come with us to the beach? And I'd say, no, I'm really busy. Who do you think is going to do this work? You know, do you think it gets done without me? You know, who do you think is going to do it? Your father's never here. You know, and the ODAC book says that we shouldn't be raped our partner to our children, you know, because they probably know way before we do that, he's sick, but what's wrong with her? And I'm sure my children were thinking that to themselves. You know, dad just doesn't come home, but what's wrong with her? Day after day, year after year, for four years, my little boys begged me to come down to the beach, meet the other parents, Mom. They sit down there, they have fun, you know, we go in and out of the water. Please come down to the beach, and every day it was the same scenario. Who's going to do the work? I have things to do. Who's going to iron? You know, that martyr thing that I was so good at. And um, we finally were going to move. Four years has passed. The night before I'm going to, or the morning before I'm going to, the movers are coming. There's a knock on my door, and it's my neighbor. And she says, Beverly, come with me. And I says, I can't. Oh, my God, I've got cleaning to do, you know, the toothbrush thing. And um, I says, I can't do that. And she says, no, you're going to come with me. You are coming with me. So she literally jerked me out of my house, put me in her car, drove me down to the little beach that was closest to where I lived. And she took two lawn chairs and a and a canister of coffee and two mugs out of her car. And she set up this little place on the, on the pier. It's just a little pier out into the water. And, she, and I said, what are we doing here? And she says, I just wanted you to see where you've lived. 
for the past four years because she says, I don't think you've ever once taken advantage of the beauty that was here. And when I came, when that scenario came to light in recovery, it was like there were months and years of my life that I was so focused on him and this and getting the work done and what can I do to be better and why doesn't he like me and all of that crazy, insane stuff that goes on when we're in the midst of this illness. And so I watched that morning. I sat there and watched the, the little swans go by and the little, the little baby swans in the sailboats. And I thought to myself, it was a beautiful place and I had not ever taken advantage of it. So we moved to Texas and I didn't know then but we brought two full-blown alcoholic children with us. They were um, 13 and 15 years old. The only thing that I was aware of is that we would sell the motorcycle before we got to Texas because I didn't want the 16-year-old on it because I could see the problems that there was with traffic, um, this morning being one of them. Um, and I didn't, want, I didn't want to have to have that argument about, no, you can't take the motorcycle out, so I sold it when he wasn't looking one day. And um, we get here, and I think, wow, we've got this big house. He's making more money. We've got a bar in the house, you know, and now we're going to put some liquor in it, and I'm going to get to watch how much he drinks. And so I'm marking the bottles. Well, I didn't know we had these alcoholic kids, so I'm marking the bottle, and they're drinking out of the bottle, and and then they're filling it up with water, and I'm marking the bottle, and I'm thinking, wow, I've got this whole thing under control. You know, um, things started missing in my house. They would be missing. And I'd say, well, where did that go? Where, what's happened to Dad's golf clubs? What happened to the little screws on the ceiling fan? Well, come to find out, um, my youngest son um, was very creative, and he was using uh, parts of our house to make bongs. And I didn't know what a bong was. still really don't know what a bong does. But he was really good at it, apparently. And um, he sawed off all George's golf clubs and used these little things off of our... And then they came home with a set of dishes that I still have today because they're still good. But they had little burn holes in them, and I couldn't figure out how the corning where little sidekick dishes were getting burned. And there was just a lot of stuff. And I asked a lot of dumb questions. You know, where did it go? Where have you been? What happened to it? Who were they? <laughs> and the answer was always the same. I don't know. <laughs> and I just wanted to grab them by the shirt collar and say, tell me, you know. I don't know. It was always the same answer, always the same. And yet I would chase them down the hall, chase them down the street and say, where are you going? Where are you? Who was that? Who spit in my sink? I don't know. What are the pills doing in my washing machine? Things always fell out of their pockets, you know. And, and then there were the little tweezers on his gear shift on the pickup truck. you got to have a pickup when you move to Texas. How come those are burned? I don't know. Apparently that was something called a roach clip. I don't know. And so I'm like thinking, you know, we have Terminex. dyslexic. I found out through the grace of God when I was 60, I was formally tested for dyslexia by a member of Alcoholics Anonymous who was a professional in that area and tested me and sent the tests off to Austin and Austin graded them and sent them back and come to find out I am really dyslexic, but I have an incredible memory and I have 5% comprehension. It's kind of a goofy thing. And I, when I read things, it's not always what it says. And it's kind of like my life. You know, what I see is not always really what it is. So for years, I would be behind a pickup truck that would have a bumper sticker on it that I thought said naive. And I would always think to myself, why would anybody put a bumper sticker on their truck that says naive? And one day I'm standing behind, I'm sitting, you know, waiting for a stoplight, and I actually spelled it out. 
N-A-T-I-V-E. Native. Well, I'm here to tell you that raising two alcoholic kids, my bumper sticker needed to be naive. Now it says expect a miracle. <laughs> and I love golden retrievers. <laughs> and paw prints. <laughs> but, you know, back then they just pulled the wool over my eyes because I was in denial about the progression of the disease of alcoholism. And I couldn't even come to a place where I could comprehend that possibly something was wrong with my children. It's impossible for us to get to that place where we can think that our kids are alcoholics at age 13 and 15, 14 and 16, and that they're actually stealing from us. And you get to a place where you have to put locks on your bedroom door and, and you live, you know, in your... You live jailed in your own home and you ask questions about where did it go and who was there and it's always the same answer. And I was in this I was in this spiral going down into this blackness and I didn't know where I was going and I had no idea how to get out. And what I know now that I know for sure is that every single person sitting in this room has been called here by a higher power. You know who I choose to call God. We didn't get here by accident. We were brought here. And given this opportunity to recover from this seemingly hopeless illness with friends who remember that you that 18 years ago, Mary sends me these beautiful handmade birthday cards for my birthday. There's people in this room that have touched my heart for years and years, but I don't know about any of this stuff. And God says, Beverly, I want you to know. I want you to know about Al-Anon. I want you to know about Alcoholics Anonymous, and I'm going to give you the gift. And there are thousands more people that aren't sitting in this room that were given the gift. But what it takes once we're here is footwork and commitment and passion and dedication and willingness and loving and laughing and running off to conferences like my rowdy friends. And, you know, and, and just hanging together and then sitting alone with God in the morning. You know, and taking the time to do all 12 steps, not just here and there, hidden this. This takes every single day to, to do the same spiritual routine every single day. And people say to me, Beverly, I want what you have. But a lot of people aren't willing to do what I do. It takes time to recover from this illness and the effects that it had on me. You know, when I was just talking to Mary, she says, I'm still crazy as a bat most of the time. And I said, me too. But, you know, we could be a whole lot worse if we weren't here. <laughs> you know, <laughs> well, there's hope. There's hope. And we've been around here a long time. There's, so, we, you know, I used to call my sponsor, Gracie, and I'd say, oh, my God, you know, what am I going to do? And I says, I'm here, you know, 10 years and it's not any better. And she'd remind me that it was progress, not perfection. Thank God for people who remind us about the simple things that there are available for here. Keep it simple. Laugh. Do something fun. Get a new golden retriever. You know, do something. <laughs> but I think what I'm focusing on a lot with the girls I sponsor now is to have fun. We get so driven into the steps and we want to do step studies and it's like work, 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 work. This is not always to be hard work. This is to be fun work. You know, this is to be enjoy. God wants us to have fun. But see, I didn't know any of that. But God wanted me to know that. So he sent me an employee that I worked with at the bank. And Margaret's son had to almost die for me to hear the message. And I said, where have you been? And she said, Tim almost died over the weekend. He had a combination of alcohol and drugs, and he was licking and sticking and doing all kinds of stuff. And he was in the intensive care at Louisville Hospital over the weekend. And she says, we almost lost him on, you know, a number of times. But he's going to be okay. And they've sent him up to Denton to this place called Westgate. And I says, what is Westgate? And she says, well, it's a place. Now, I heard this. I heard it. She says, it's a place where he's going to... Re cover from alcoholism. And I says, how long does it take? And she said, 28 days. <laughs> and so I called George. I got the phone number of Westgate because, you see, a couple of weeks before Margaret told me about her son, Tim, I was growing a crop of marijuana in my bedroom. 
I had ten flower pots, and they told me it was mystery seeds. And I just, I, you know, I potted them and planted them and put saran wrap on them and gave them southern exposure. And every day I came home for lunch and I turned the pots and one day I took the saran wrap off and they grew. They were like Jack and the Beanstalk and they grew and they grew. And I'm thinking we have full hybrid miracles. Pointed leaves, dark green, what would you think? Wouldn't you? And so as I'm sitting there talking to Margaret about this 28 day, I'm thinking to myself, because see, later, after six weeks of growing the marijuana in my bedroom window, I came home from work one Friday night and it had the crop had been harvested. <laughs> And I was so angry because I thought the cats got the crop. <laughs> and I did not know what we were going to do because now I'm, I have this dilemma. It's 7 o'clock Friday night and I need to go to school and tell the science teacher we grew the project. Now I'm so glad it was 7 o'clock on a Friday night because I would have made a bigger fool of myself than I had ever made <laughs> in any of the other things that I did. Um, but I got angry. I got really white, hot, raged, angry, which was what happens to me when I'm so out of control. I don't know what to do, you know, and I thought if anybody had been in that house, they would have, I, I would have killed that day. I have the capacity for it to go from zero to flaming in a, in a microsecond. So I remembered that when Margaret was telling me about Westgate. So we went to Westgate and they said we have alcoholism here, but we don't know who. And I was offended by that because I had quit drinking many years before because somebody's got to watch him. Now, he would never surrender his keys, never surrender his keys, but nonetheless I needed to be co-pilot and make sure, you know, that I was nagging on him and, you know, making sure that he wasn't drinking too much. Well, I was the one that was getting crazy and he was the one that was getting drunk. So I was remembering all those things uh, when Margaret was telling me. And then they sent us home. They said, we're sure somebody has alcoholism, but we don't know who. So when you figure it out, bring him or her back. And that was somewhere around the end of January of 1981. And on the ninth day of February of 1981, my son took something that he just couldn't. I wasn't naive that morning. I knew it. I knew I had it. I knew it was a ring. I'd have worn it to work. On Friday and I put it down on my dresser and on Monday it was gone and so I chased him down and you know was well the threats and I'm calling my son names and he goes to school and he called me up a few minutes later I called him sick that day and he called me up a few minutes later and he says if you'll take me to Westgate um, I'll go there and in 28 days recover from alcoholism but all I all uh, the other thing that I want you to know is that you don't have to have a pure desire to be here the reason my son wanted to go to treatment for those 28 days is that the kid that he was robbing houses and my house was already in the Denton County Jail and my son knew it was only a matter of minutes before the cops came and got him out of high school and put him in jail. And so that was the reason he called me up and asked me to take him to treatment. My older son drove us that day because I was such a wreck after the scene at the bus stop and, you know, all of this. My older son drove us, but he didn't come in. Now, he had just come back from a young life ski trip. Now, I don't want to scare any of you, uh, but he had been on a young life ski, ski trip, and he had been drinking, and he was pretty stoned most of the weekend, and he knew that if he walked in the doors of Westgate, he wasn't going to be coming out. <laughs> so he said, I'll just sit out here and wait, and so he did. Um, I signed on the dotted line, and then they said to me, you have to go to Al-Anon or you can't come back here and see your child. And I thought, well, I, I said, I work. And she said, well, so do we. And we, go, and we go to meetings, and we work, and, um, and, we, and so you're going to do that or you can't come back here and see it. And in my mind, I could have big conversations in my mind. And I'm thinking, who does she think she is? I'm paying the bill here. I'm paying your salary. And she was this big. 
and I thought, okay, I'll go to Al-Anon so I can come here and check up on him. I had no idea what Al-Anon was. So I go to Al-Anon, and my husband bought me an ODAT book, and a couple of people in the room signed the book and put their phone numbers in it, and I still have that book today. And, you know, it, it's like I, I read and I touch that book every day, that book. It's, it's the most important thing. Every detail of life that has happened to me in the last 32 years is written on the outer borders of my ODAT book. Who died, who got married, how much your baby weighed, you know, where we went on vacation, whose birthday it was, how old they are. It's all around the borders of my ODAT book. And I've told my grandchildren, I says, if anything happens to me, which it will someday, because I would like to think I'm eternal, um, I says, somebody take that book, because there's 32 years of history in that little book. But there's also 32 years of growth. And I don't know how you are. Mine is all in blue highlights, yellow highlights, orange, purple highlights. But every day when I open up that book and I read whatever it is that's on the page for the day, I think, huh. I don't think I've ever read that before. <laughs> I'm, I'm like a, I'm, you know, I'm a native. <laughs> so I went to Al-Anon for 28 days, had my little ODAT book, and on March 8th when he got out of treatment, I was going to be gone. But, you know, I fell in love with Al-Anon right from the get-go. Um, and I don't know how that happened. You know, I, I'm not so sure I had my first spiritual experience right away, but obviously I must have. Somewhere in that 28 days, God opened up my heart, and I knew I was home. And there's a little thing in our ODAP book that said, somewhere down deep inside, we knew we were home. And when I read that, no matter when that little page comes up in the ODAP book, I always feel really weepy. And I guess it's gratitude when you weep. Um, it is for me. Because every single time I walk into an Al-Anon meeting, and I am as active in Al-Anon today as I was in the very beginning, somewhere down deep inside, I know I'm home. And when I walked in here today, you all welcomed me, and I was home. I'm with my people. you know. And thank God for the traditions. I am clear that I am not your leader. <laughs> and I like that. Um, there's been a number of things that have happened in, in, in this path of recovery, and um, I'm going to tell you about a few of them. As time went on, I was assigned a sponsor because I didn't know how to mind my own business. <laughs> and by this time, I've got one kid that's sort of sober, and then on the 30th day of March of 1981, my son walked in the kitchen, and he was noticeably drunk, or else I was out of denial just a little bit. And I went, oh, my God, Stephen, you're drunk. It was like 8 o'clock in the morning, and we were going to a meeting at the Alpha Group in Dallas. And um, Scott pipes up, and he goes, God, Mom, he's worse than me. And at that moment, I didn't know what to do. I, I just didn't know what to do. So we went to the meeting, and there was a couple there, um, Bill and Marianne, and they had six sons. And they had one of those blended families. They had her boys and his boys and their boys. And somehow or other, they had a little bit of everything. One was living under a bridge. One was at the 24-hour club. One was at SMU. One was in the military. And, you know, they were in the program a long time. So I said, Bill, this is what I think is going on. I says, I think our other son might be alcoholic. And he said, you have two choices. Now, I've never heard that before. Nobody in my entire life had ever given me a choice. My mother was strong-armed, and my husband was, he, when he was drinking, he was a bully. And, and I never knew about the word choice. But Bill said, you have two choices. And I said, what? He said, you can either ask him to come to Alcoholics Anonymous or leave your home. And I said, oh, my God. I thought we had to, like, keep them forever. <laughs> I didn't know. I really didn't know that I could. I said, leave? I said, gosh, he's only 17 and a half years old. He says, he wants to run around and drink with those kids? Let him go. Let him go. So I didn't have any courage or faith or strength back then. So I'm like, okay, 
if Bill says I can do this, I can do this. So Steve woke up somewhere in the late afternoon, and when he surfaced, I went up to him and I said to him, I got to tell you something. I said, you're drinking and you're drugging and you were drunk when you came home from from work this morning. I said, Dad's sober in AA and Scott's trying to be sober. And I was going to somewhere between 8 and 11 Al-Anon meetings, an open AA meetings a week, 8 and 11 total meetings a week. And I says, and our home is sober right now and you can't live here and be drunk. And I said, and they told me at the AA meeting this morning that if you either want to join us in Alcoholics Anonymous or you have to leave. Now, I couldn't say that was what I wanted him to do because I didn't have that kind of courage. But I had Bill's courage, and he said, these are the only two choices. What I learned from you by that time was that you only shared your experience, strength, and hope. You didn't tell me, well, Beverly, like my neighbors did. If I was you, I wouldn't live with that mess. You know, well, their husband came home at five o'clock at night and, and wasn't a drunk, you know, so they wouldn't know. They don't know. We don't know. That's why that's why in, even in sponsorship, I'm not allowed to help anybody that I don't have the experience to help them with. And I'm smart enough to know that today. But what I'm also smart enough, because you've taught me so much, I am so wise because of you, is that I can say, well, I think Danielle has that experience. So let me call Danielle and ask her if it'd be okay if you talk to her about that. And so we arrange things, and we help each other, and it's a network. You know, They say it takes a village to raise a child. Well, you all are my village, and I'm Chuck, and you have all raised me. And I'm so grateful for that. And so... Um, Steve got angry and he went out the driveway at 180 miles an hour and a few minutes later, I mean, he calculated real quick that being on his own was going to cost him drug money. And so he called me and he says, God, Mom, I can't afford to live by myself. And I said, well, your only option is then you have to get so, you have to come to AA. I didn't get so. And then I had a little soapbox scene where God said, shut up and leave it alone. And so the next night, we're on our way to an AA meeting and Mr. B doesn't like the way Stephen is dressed. He had on a coarse hat, a tequila t-shirt, holy jeans, titty shoes, earrings, and his hair was big, big. And he says, I am not walking into, I'm not walking into AA with him like that. So we stopped the car on FM 407, and he got out, and he stomped home. And I got out of the car, and I'm going to stomp home after him. And leave the car parked in the middle of FM 407 with two kids in the back seat. And the kid, the, the young sober one, rolls down the window and he goes, Mom, get in the car and drive. And I says, but what about Dad? He says, you know, he's either going to stay sober or drink. What can you do about it? Drive. So I get in the car and I drive to the meeting. And when we get there, my friend Millie is sitting there and she goes, who's that? And I said, that's our oldest son. And she said, Beverly, he's half dead. I can't see it. I can't see the disease. His face was all broke out. By the time they get to that stage of alcoholism and drug addiction, they have pimples and their hair is dead. You know, they eat picante sauce and corn chips. That's what they eat. And, um, and so she says, he's half dead. And... She assigned Bobby to take care of him, and then she said, you go to Al-Anon, and we'll take care of this. Oh, I, I, I didn't know. So I go get a cup of coffee, and as I'm going into my Al-Anon meeting, I peeked into the AA room just to see if he was there, and I watched Scott nudge him, and he got up to the podium, and he says, I'm Steve, I'm alcoholic, and he had his hat off, and he was like this. And he will celebrate 32 years on that desire chip on March 30th. And I don't have anything to do with that, except his sponsor poked me in the chest one day, and he said, you know what, you're interfering in Stephen's sobriety, and you need to get a sponsor. And he says, here's her phone number. Well, <laughs> I thought I was doing okay on my on my own, but you know what they say here, he who sponsors himself sponsors a fool. <laughs> and um, 
and so I was sponsoring myself, and I thought I was doing a pretty good job of it, and so he told me to call Sally. So I called Sally, and she says, I've been waiting for you to call. Um, Bobby told me you would be calling. And, you know, for the first year, all I did was cry. Every time I called Sally, I'd go, and, and I thought step one was she would always say to me, honey, go blow your nose. And that's what it was, go blow your nose. And, you know, it was, he did this and he did that, and blah, blah, blah. And she'd say, take a look at yourself. What part did you play in it? I had no idea. No idea. You're powerless over this. Well, then I got to looking at that little sign on the podium, and it says, I didn't cause it. I can't control it. I can't cure it. But God couldn't would if he were sought, which is part of the ABCs at the last of how it works. But God could and would if he were sought. I am not my son's God. I am not my husband's God. I cannot cure or cause alcoholism. It is a progressive disease, and the people who have it can arrest it by going to meetings and having a higher power of their own. And they kept telling me, put the focus on yourself. Put the focus on yourself. What do you like to do? Beats me. I like to look at him. (laughs) I like to know when he's coming home, you know, if he's coming home. I like to make sure the mashed potatoes, the gravy's not sticky on the top. You know, that's my job. I didn't know. You know, I had no idea. So I started some step work, and I began to understand the significance of what it means to be powerless over something. And what is my life? It's what happens inside of here and here. That's my life. That's all I'm concerned about in step one is what happens inside of here and what happens inside of here. And then step two turns us right over to coming to believe that I can't fix what's going on in here, but I can say, God, please help me. Please help me. And in the third step, it just says I have to be willing. And then we went on with the step work, and and I was able to take those inventories. And I was in a place where, you know, I wasn't able to just clean it all up in one inventory. (laughs) It was a mess. It was a mess. Um, I ran into the lady who listened to my first inventory last Saturday. We, We do something that's fun about quarterly. We have ladies' night out. And we have two uh, speakers, an Al-Anon and an AA speaker, and more food than you can eat, but we managed. And, um, you know, and, and the lady who listened to my first fifth step was there. I mean, is that something? 32 years later, and she's still active, and I'm active. And the only way that she got to do that, I wrote this 65 pages on yellow legal paper. Would you want to be the recipient of that? Well, when I got it done, Sally had gone somewhere, and they weren't going to be back for a long time, and here I was sitting on this inventory. And so I, this lady, I related to her in a meeting, and I said, would you listen to my inventory? And she says, I'd be happy to. It would be an honor. Can you imagine the people in this room would listen to that? And she came at 7 o'clock. She was there on time. She stayed till midnight. <laughs> And we got it done somehow. And, you know, I cried and we laughed and she cried and it was just unbelievable. And and the next day, she drove all the way across town and came to my bank to see if I was okay. Are you okay? That was the great thing. I told you my dad came in 1988. 1988 was a very bad year. Um, in, in early September of 1988, we brought my dad to Texas with multiple myeloma, and we started the chemotherapy and radiation. Somewhere about the 1st of October of 1988, my son called, and he had been in the hospital for 10 days, and he says, Mom, I don't have bad news. He says, I'm in full-blown AIDS, and I'm going to die. They gave me a year, and our granddaughter was six months old at the time that they diagnosed the AIDS. And I had gone to the vet during that week, and he said, Beverly, I'll put one more shot of cortisone in her hips, but the fact is next time she goes down, she's not getting up. And it was at that time, on that day, that I came to believe in the power at a level that I I can say I believe in it now. Because I called a sponsor, and I said, let me tell you what's going on in my life. 
And I says, and you guys promised me in the rooms of Al-Anon that you would never give me more than I could handle. And I said, my dad's dying of multiple myeloma. My son called me a half hour ago and said he's in full-blown AIDS and he's going to die. And I'm going to have to put my dog to sleep. And she says, and we're going to find a way to get you to a place where you see the evidence of God every single day. Not one single day that goes by between now and when all this comes to pass, she said, you will see the evidence of God. And it was one of those days that I go, I have dialed the wrong number. (laughs) And she said, I know you write in a journal. She didn't believe in writing in journals. She thought it was a waste of time. But she said, I know you write in that journal every day. And at the top of the page, I want you to write down where you see the evidence of God. And I do that today. And I'm going to tell you what, it's not hard to find today because I see the evidence of God clearly every single day. I am helped and maneuvered along and everybody's in their right place. And if I just trust and sit back in it and just just let it all unfold, it does. A couple of weeks ago, I was in Redding, California, and my purse rang and I ignored it. Because I was having breakfast with a bunch of people. So I didn't pay any attention to my purse ringing. And so I thought I'll catch it later. Well, then Mr. B, he's on the doorbell ring. So I hear the doorbell and I'm thinking, I just talked to him and he um, isn't well. And I got scared and I thought, I says, I'm going to take this because I just talked to him. And he said, did you get a call from American Airlines? Your flight's been canceled. And I said, oh, that must have been the call I ignored. So anyhow, I ran into a quiet space and visited with American Airlines and found out I couldn't get out of San Francisco, but if I drove to Sacramento, I could go home on a 2.30 flight. So I go back to, I said to the lady, would you hold on for a minute? (laughs) So I go back to the breakfast table, and there was one lady there that I had never laid eyes on before. I didn't even know her name. And I go to the table, and my hair's on fire, and my panties are in a wad, and I says, my God, I need a ride to Sacramento. It's three hours, okay? I said, I need to ride to Sacramento. And the lady that I didn't know, had never met before, says, I live in Sacramento. I'd be happy to take you to the airport. And she says, when do you have to go? And I said, now. She says, let me get my dog in my suitcase, and we're on our way. And that's how it works for me today. But you see, I didn't have the eyes to see that before. And it's not just then. This happens to me every single day. Every single day. There's something just magnificent that I look and see, and I think, oh, my God, how did that happen? But the more that I believe and the more that I trust and the more that I sit back and I rest in it, I don't miss those things. I don't miss them at all. I see it all today. So time went on. My father died February 10th, 1990. Time went on. We got a chance to take care of my son, gain and grow a relationship with the daughter-in-law and the grandchild. And on February 6th of 1993, my son passed away. And my husband and I went into a grief process that was unlike anything alcoholism had ever created for us. Um, We just couldn't get along. It was just, you know, one step forward, two steps back. You know, we were were in so much pain over that, and it took a long time to heal that up. And in the meanwhile, we bought a puppy for the baby, and and, um, I'm thinking about where am I going to live. You know, maybe I could do a little studio apartment, and i got to get out of here. This is just too painful. And then I thought, my God, the dog needs a yard. And, you know, so it was the beginning. It was the beginning. And um, we are not Ozzy and Harriet. I can tell you that right now. We're feisty. Um, You know, we're like a couple of Italians most of the time. Uh, We're very opinionated and, you know, a little on the high-strung side. And um, we, um, when we talk to each other and reason things out, Sometimes it's like Italians, you know. So um, he and I um, got through that. We um, started a business in 1982, and um, in October of this year, we retired from that business. We worked together, traveled all over, had a blast, just had a blast. And um, this year, I think, has been a hard year for both of us. Um, He's got COPD, and it's progressing. 
And, uh, you know, it's hard to watch for both of us. Um, in January, I had a sponsee die almost like overnight of breast cancer. And, and that was like, it, it was such a trauma for me to have that happen because it's like, how could one of my sponsees die? I, you know, that's not, I couldn't wrap my brain around all that. So there was that and um, the retirement. And in March, um, two of our close family members um, had a disagreement with us and, and walked out of our life. And for a number of um, weeks, I couldn't sleep. I, you know, I, I just didn't know what to do. I was so broken over it. It was a grief process, a deep, deep grief process that I had to go through until I could come to a place where I could be okay and understand this is not about me. You know, I had to review, you know, take some inventories about my life. You know, what did I do? And if I did anything, it was love too much, you know. And, but I don't know whether that was the cause of it or not the cause of it. But, you know, it was it is what it is. Last night my son and I were talking about it, and he goes, Mom, it is what it is. And I have to just remember that. Um, so life has just gone on. It's, you know, there's been ups and downs and hills and valleys. My two dogs, two of my three dogs are registered therapy dogs, and, and I um, ended up getting a little... A volunteer job at our public library in a program called Sit, Stay, Read. And I have the opportunity to um, sit while little dyslexic, two little dyslexic girls read to the dogs. And I've been doing that for seven years. Um, the library this year didn't think that it was a valuable enough um, program because they had they were going to put on an addition and she had other programs that she had to focus on and she said two of our dogs died and and, it, you know, you put the paperwork out. You never know how many kids are going to come in. And so she says, we're just going to focus on something more important. And I knew the importance of that. So I opened up my home and my little girls come and read in my house. And, you know, it's important because they are probably are going to have to wear a dunce cap or a beanie or be called stupid because, um, you know, they have these opportunities. They've been diagnosed early. They won't have to wait until they're 60 to do that. So we take our recovery out into the community, and I do the best I can. And, you know, in our little triangle, it says spiritual, physical, and mental. And as a physical part of that, I walk every day a couple of miles. It's my meditation time. I used to talk to sponsees while I walked, and I thought, this is crazy. You know, I'm missing the sunrise. <laughs> so um, I just, you know, every day, unless the pavement sweat, I go out for a long walk. Um, do the best we can with what we've been given today. Be grateful for everything that we have. Um, and life, I think, is really good. You know, it's good. And all I have to do is focus on me. Am I taking care of myself? Am I doing the very best I can, you know, with this triangle, um, with, the, with the physical, the mental, and the spiritual? And on most days, I think I am. And it's because of the program. Because I know that no matter what's going on, I probably didn't cause it, can't control it, can't cure it. And if I did cause it, we have a tenth step that takes care of that. And it doesn't take too long before it starts to go in here. And I know that an amend is necessary. I love the way I live today. I just love the way I live today. I love what God has done for me. I love Al-Anon. And I love Alcoholics Anonymous. And I love you, and I thank you so much for being a part of my 32nd birthday.